It's Thursday, January 4th, 2024, from Peachfisher Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In Japan, an Airbus A350 had 379 passengers aboard when it crashed into a smaller aircraft on the Tokyo runway. In 18 minutes, which airline officials say is actually way too long, but in 18 minutes, which for the lives of the 379 passengers and crew members aboard was sufficient, in 18 minutes, everyone got off and everyone survived. Today, we are reading the accounts of how this all happened, and the word orderly appears quite prominently in all the press. Reuters quoted Satoshi Yamake, who was seated near the front, who said, despite some passengers being very anxious, the crew quickly deployed the evacuation chutes, and people began disembarking in an orderly fashion. I did expect, in reading these stories and hearing them, at least some acknowledgement of the orderliness of Japanese society, the Japanese culture, Japanese people. I did not get that. Maybe this is on me, and I was engaged in stereotypes. But there's a way, we as reporters all know a way to at least explore that, sneak that inside. You quote an expert or you quote from Japanese people who are very proud of the comportment of the Japanese airlines crew saying, yes, we are Japanese. This is what we do. But there were no such quotes. It was mainly about how scared everyone was on the plane and in some press, how 18 minutes is still a little long. 10 minutes later, the plane did explode into flames. I couldn't help but think about how this might have turned out in the United States. Yes, Sully Sullenberger, bless that man and his hatred of geese. But every time I have ever seen a video from a United States commercial aircraft, nothing good is contained therein. Perhaps a business executive who has been overserved decides to defecate in a place where defecation is not allowed. Perhaps a mysterious business executive starts seeing ghosts and sharing her opinions. Or perhaps, if the footage is of Spirit Airlines, the Florida man of commercial airline footage, cacophony abounds. What we need is a little more modeling for the U.S. commercial airline passenger, just to take the idea of orderliness and pass around some viral videos so we know if not how to act, how one might act when the stakes are high, higher than even the idea of a ghost, specter, or lizard person in steerage. I'm telling you, I'm getting the fuck off, and there's a reason why I'm getting the fuck off, and everyone can either believe it or they cannot believe it. I don't give two fucks, but I am telling you right now, that motherfucker, that motherfucker back there is not real. And you can sit on this plane and you can fucking die with them or not. I'm not going to. On the show today, a programming note, the planned interview with Hortense Calabrese, author of Bridge and Tunnel, has been canceled as I mistakenly assumed it would be a history of Staten Island, not having read the full title, Bridge and Tunnel, How I Survived Repetitive Wrist Injuries to Thrive in Competition Card Play. We regret the error. 
in the spiel. I shall analyze the emoluments clause. Wait, might that still have something to say about the Trump presidency? It might. It just might. But it most probably might not. We will explain why. But first, we return with Adam Nagorny. Because yesterday, I discussed with Mr. Nagorny his book, The Times, how the newspaper of record survived scandal, scorn, and the transformation of journalism. And today... He's back to pick up where we were left off, namely how the New York Times views objectivity, and if that concept even still applies in the newsroom of today. Adam Nagorny, part two, up next. Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? Adam Nagorny is a national political reporter with the New York Times, and his new book, The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism, touches on many of the problems the paper has faced and how it dealt with those issues. We discussed a lot of that yesterday on the show. Listen back. I encourage you. But today, but let's move forward, shall we? And today, I wanted to talk about where The Times is now, what its future looks like. So I started with a pretty basic question. How has the idea of objectivity changed to the New York Times over the years? Um, I think Trump has really tested it. Um, I think objectivity is a really tricky word, and that's become more and more clear over the years. Uh, objectivity is sort of this um, status or this this level that you try to reach, which I, I mean, no one is really objective. People have points of views. You can try to suppress them, but you just do. I think what you really want to do is write a story that is tells a story in a fair-minded, balanced kind of way that present readers all the all the sort of um, information they need to understand what's going on. Um, and I think trying to say you're objective, like, and we all have our own experiences, right? We all live different ways. And, you know, we can do certain things to try to come across as more objective, including how we write. But I think objectivity is kind of a, a false um a false goal that's just impossible to reach, which is not to me, not to say you can't write stories that are down the middle and even handed and help readers understand what's going on without putting your finger on it. Let me give you one other example. Uh, I, it's, a, it's a really difficult kind of, um, it's a difficult road to, walk, to, to, to navigate, but I think that a reporter who's really informed and knows his or her stuff can prevent, present a story with a point of view. That's not to say, for example, abortion's bad or abortion's wrong, but to help, or, or abortion's right, but to help people understand why people do what they're doing and why stuff is going on. And that's, I still think that falls into the definition of objective, but it obviously has a point of view to it. Yeah, I don't want to get too hung up on the word. I read, uh, I've been following this a lot. I read an essay, long essay by the Times publisher, A.G. Salzberger, in Columbia Journalism Review. And there's a lot of words spent saying that 
objectivity is not the best word. Um, something of the nut graph or his thesis is independent journalism. That's what he calls it. He sidesteps that's right. calling it objectivity. That's right. Independent journalism elevates values grounded in humility, fairness, impartiality, and to use perhaps the most fraught and argued over word in journalism, objectivity as ideals to be pursued, even if they can never be perfectly achieved. How much was that idea? I'm going to take it as part of his thesis, that there are people, there are elements within the paper. I've seen this play out on the uh, op-ed pages of the Times. Um, Mm -hmm. There are people who argue that that's an old ideal and all it does is entrench power in the powerful. How much was that idea, independent journalism, um, just exactly what I read to you, ever really questioned in the, what was, you know, 30-something years, 40-something years that you chronicled the paper? I don't think I ever came across any serious challenging of questioning of it at all. It was how the paper defined itself for a long, long time, probably at least through 2016. Um, And does it still? I think that AG's essay reflects what the newspaper wants to do. Do I think every person in the newsroom agrees with that now? No. Is this a perfect atmosphere to sort of figure out what's going on considering President Trump? Probably not. Right. Has there ever been a time uh, from your looking at and being having all the records and talking to the people, has mm-hmm. there ever been a time when something as fundamental as that was questioned by a decent sized faction of the people putting out the New York Times? No, I never came across anything like that, which is what makes it such an interesting and unusual time. People yeah. kind of agreed to what the basic mission and the way the newspaper should act. And I, again, I'll avoid the word objective, but they would use words like objective to describe it. So if we are to say that it survived the transformation, I suspect if it doesn't, it will be more for that reason or those reasons or uh, a crack up over that definition than macroeconomic trends or right-left debates. Do you think that that's a reasonable supposition? I do. I think that... um, I think it is impossible now to tell where the paper is going to end up. I think I'll stand by the business side of it, but I was very careful in saying the transformation is a business. I think there's all kinds of forces that it is dealing with now, all kinds of struggles. Um, the, the way you describe it captures it very, very well. And I don't know, and I would also fold into that the whole idea that the papers now has an obligation to the subscribers that used to have to advertisers is a way of being a financial model. That's all stuff it's figuring out. Um, I would argue that right now the paper has still managed to do that and stand by the basic mission of the New York Times as it's been for the past 100 next years. But you know what? I, if somebody's going to come along and do the next stage of this book, I hope, in 10 or 15 years, and that to me is the big question, and we don't know the answer to it, and I don't think we'll know it for a long time. But that's the struggle that's going on. That's exactly right. When Let's take other times when there were competitors. Uh, in the early 90s, mm-hmm. the New York Newsday and the Daily News, I don't know how shaking <laughs> in their boots uh, the New York Times was, but other newspapers were the competitors. Earlier, places like the Village Voice were definitely seen as cooler places to work. There was the new journalism of New York Magazine. Yep. Were those challenges, did those challenges to the Times ever threatened to change the DNA of the New York Times as this moment, this postmodern moment of questioning the idea of independent journalism slash objectivity? 
Um, I, no, not to this extent. I think that the paper became more aggressive at times in covering New York City, uh, being, I don't want to say dragged into it because that seems pejorative, but dragged into it by the aggressive reporting of the New York Post, the New York Daily News, of the kinds of stories that the paper might have seen as below it. But I don't think that's as fundamental a change as what you're talking about. That was just sort of adjusting to the times, to the to the era. Um, I'm not sure New York Newsday, which I was a big fan of, had that much of an effect on how the paper produced, had the time to produce this news report. Right. I think it, it looked much more at the Washington Post. You know, it's the competition has always been the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times. That's who it looked at as competition. Through You don't have one chart, but through the book, you cite circulation numbers. And it almost always seemed to me that the circulation of the Times was much more a consequence of the overall conditions of newspapers and maybe the economy than any decisions that the New York Times itself made. And I think now that might be a break from that history. So it's a two-part question. Has that usually been true that the Times can only make certain decisions to get around the circulation trends and is now, right now, the time we're living in, an exception to that rule? You know, I would say take a look at what happened in the late 1970s when the Times created all those special sections, um, dining, or maybe it was called food, dinner, science, living. They still exist to some extent. And that was being done because readers were moving out of New York City to Westchester, to Long Island. They were subscribing to newspapers like Newsday, the Gadette Westchester newspapers. And the Times had to respond. And those special sections drew back readers and they drew back advertisers. So I do think there are things the Times can do to bring back print subscribers. Um, We're in a different world now, as you're saying, right? The first thing that matters is the phone, right? So you need to have stuff on the phone that will make people want to read it. I am not arguing the paper is guilty of clickbait. Um, I just don't think it is. But obviously, like, if you look at your phone at any moment, you'll see four or five stories about Trump at the top. Those are most days the most important thing that's going on. And that's also going to get the most readers. But this is what I was talking about before. This is a line that the paper has to draw now, walk down between promoting stories that will get more and more paid subscribers and staying true to its sort of DNA. I think that it's managed to do that. But again, that's the struggle that we're going to see play out over the next couple of years. What percent of the readership describes itself as liberal? Uh, the last number I saw, and I would check this before putting this in any newspaper story, was like 60 or 70 percent. Yeah. It's high. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's a couple of years ago, so I don't know, but I, I doubt it went down. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think it might be higher. I saw a 2016 article in the Times uh, citing Pew that said 65 percent of readers then defied themselves as liberal, but I think that number has gone up. Um, how does that, does the Times then see itself as we're putting out a paper for our readers and our readers are liberal? Does it, does it wish that weren't the case? How does it square the reality of who their customers are versus the ideal of not to be, uh, inflected by partisanship or ideology? I mean, this is again, the key question the paper is struggling with right now. I mean, I think that they would tell you that, you know, we don't, the paper doesn't tailor its news to you know, appeal to a partisan slash liberal audience. But, you know, obviously in lots of ways, you make decisions on what to cover and how to play it. And it reflects people's, dare I say, bias, right? People are people. And also what readers want to read. Readers want to read stories about crackdowns on abortion. 
uh, rights, which I think is also extremely newsworthy. So it's hard to sort of figure out what it is. I, I do think the paper needs to navigate this over the next couple of years. There was a, um, yeah. a public editor, kind of an ombudsman named Dan Okrent, who you might have met over the years. And he met him, know him, like him, think he's the only one who did that job <laughs> almost <laughs> perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what I objected to you just said. Nothing. So I agree. And I interviewed him and I spent a lot of time writing about him because I thought that he was a really important figure. And he, as you probably remember, you might remember, he wrote a column. I think the headline was like the New York Times is a liberal newspaper. Right? Yeah. Oh, no, is yeah. it the New York Times a liberal newspaper? And then the answer is sure it is. Now, he was making a point there. He told me he came to regret that because it was kind of brilliant and glib at the way Daniel can be, but it just gave ammunition to the paper's opponents. Now, the paper's op-ed pages, opinion pages, I think obviously skew liberal, and I think there's nothing wrong with the paper appealing to that kind of readership, even though they are trying to bring in more and more conservative voices like Brett Stevens. Um, I think the news, news pages, I mean, life is life. People are going to choose stories and play them to some point, to some extent, reflecting their own internal interests. Let's not use the word bias interest. But I don't think that the I don't think that A.G. Sulzberger or the editor now, Joe Kahn, would say the road for the future for the Times means appealing only writing liberal stories that will make liberal readers happy. I just don't think that's what they think where the where they think the paper should be going. No, I know they don't think that, but how much do they spend their time worrying about it, mitigating against it, not only worrying about the perception, but worrying a, about the reality. I'll you know what? Let's put a pin in that or let's remember that question and I'll yeah, yeah. I'll quote okay. I'll quote from you um part of James <laughs> Bennett's essay in right. 1843, which is the Economist magazine. So Bennett was the op-ed page editor. He wasn't there as op-ed page editor in the time you were writing about the paper, though he worked at the paper during the time that you chronicled. And here's a quote, and I know that it happened after your reporting, but my question will be, how much does this idea reflect the times that you were chronicling? The Times' failure to honor its own stated principles of openness to a wide range of views was particularly hard on the handful of conservative writers, some of whom would complain about being fly-specked and abused by colleagues. One day, when I relayed a conservative's concern about double standards to Salzberger, he lost his patience. He told me to inform the complaining conservative that's just how it was. There was a double standard, and he should get used to it. A publication that promises it's Readers who stand apart from politics should not have different standards for different writers based on their politics, but I delivered the message, and he says he's ashamed to have done so. Does that resemble the times that you covered? Um, I don't think that it does, but things change very dramatically, I, I believe, after 2016, after Trump. Um, I think that James's um, uh, essay captured dramatically a moment in the paper's history when he was there. I don't know. I literally don't know if it's as bad as it is now. And more important from my perspective, I don't know whether long-term it's the kind of transformation that it looks like it might be. I don't think we know, but I think James was in the middle of it and he wrote about it in a very kind of dramatic kind of way. Right. So draw upon what you know from, and don't go beyond what you know. And I know you won't. I've listened to a lot of interviews that you've done and you say, I'm going to punt on that question. Like, will they get, (laughs) will they do another Hillary email story? All right, here we go. If the times, if a, if uh, AG Salzberger is worried about the future of the paper, should his worries lie and rank these as things he might be worried about? a conservative versus liberal slash progressive split, a 
postmodern versus objectivity, independent journalism split, or an attention of a young attention besieged audience tension? What what should he be most worried about if the Times is to survive in the uh, with the status it has? Um, you know what? I think I am going to punt on ah. that. I'll tell you why. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I just don't feel. I don't feel. You know, one thing I did in this book is like everything I wrote, every conclusion I made, every analysis was based on extensive reporting. It was based on talking to people. It was based on looking at tons and tons of documents. So I knew what I was talking about. If I was to answer that. Let me be clear, Mike. I think that's a really good question. I'd be just flopping. You know, what do yeah. I know, right? I, it's, but I'll tell you this, right? If I was to come back and write the next part of this book in 10 years, I doubt I'll be that person. That is exactly the kind of question that I would be dealing with. I think you got the right, you, you got the money on the right thing. But I've never talked to AG about this. And I just, you, there are better people you can ask that very good question to. Yeah, I, this is, this is when, when you say that, I respect that you don't want to, uh, go beyond your expertise um, and you don't want to pontificate. On the other hand, we're talking about newspapers and the goal there is the best available version of the truth, which is something that uh, Carl Bernstein always says, the best available right. version of the truth. It doesn't, newspapers don't have the luxury of 10 years in retrospect, you know. Saddam Hussein himself thought that he had weapons of mass destruction, right? So that's one of the things that proved the Judy Miller story wrong. So newspapers, you have to make decisions pretty quickly. If I, if you wrote a book on uh, Vietnam and I asked you about Lebanon and you were like, oh, I don't really know. It's only seven years after the bombing. I'd want at right. least some insight. I don't know. Can you go and take any of those main problems and draw a parallel to the time you covered? Like how they how they address the idea of the attention of young people or how they address the idea of a li of liberal and conservatism when it came up in the past and how they successfully navigated that. I mean, I think on ideology on liberalism versus conservatism, I think they always had that sort of formula of just right down the middle. And and I'm not sure that works anymore. That's the problem. And that's what you're raising here, right? You can just, I'll give you kind of an example of this. It kind of goes to it, though it's not exactly right. Um, one of the executive editors, Joe Lillyveld, used to talk to me about how he would put a story about Bosnia as the lead story on the front page, knowing that very few readers would read it, but actually not caring, right? Like he thought right. that was kind of funny because he thought that was the most important story of the day. You can't do that anymore, right? You right. just can't. You got to read write stuff that's really interesting. So I, I think I think they did stuff like that, maybe to win awards, but they did multi-part series about train track crossings. And I don't know how many people are reading their Water in the West coverage. Oh, thank you. That's the example I keep using, right? Like what people say to me, is the New York Times still the New York Times? I'm like, well, look at the water in the West. That's <laughs> they, fabulous. They still stuff. dare to bore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Like, I'm reading that stuff, but, like, how many people are really reading it? But I think that's a really good example. So, you know, they need to do stuff to appeal to younger readers. I'm not sure they know how to do it, but I think that's a big priority on the ideology stuff. I know I can tell you what they want to do. I can tell you what they've done in the past. Will that work over the next 10 years? I mean, I kind of hope so. I'm, I'm really old school that way. Adam Nagorny is the author. The book is The Times, How the Newspaper of Records Survived Scandal, Scorn, and the Transformation of Journalism. Adam, thank you so much. I love that. Thank you.
And now the spiel. Do you remember the emoluments clause? If you forgot it, it's still there. Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the Constitution. It bars officials from, quote, advantage, profit, or gain received as a result of one's employment or one's holding of office. You know, an emolument. Possibly emolument. But I've gone with emolument. Wait, didn't Donald Trump run up against the emoluments clause during his presidency? Or am I just confusing that with all the other federal statutes he was charged with. Everything short of hunting a bear out of season. No, 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 no. There actually was an emoluments court case, possibly emolument. I'm going to stop with the parsing of the language. And Trump lost in Maryland. But that was appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States, who waited. And then when Trump lost the election, mooted the whole thing. We got no clarity. That did not stop two of the local prosecutors who were pursuing the case from declaring victory. The attorney generals of Maryland and Washington, D.C. said that the lower court ruling was a success, success enough, asserting that, quote, this will serve as precedent that will stop anyone else from using the presidency or other federal office for personal gain the way that President Trump has over the past four years. Well, guess what? It didn't, and in fact, that anyone else who might think to use the presidency for personal gain, that may well be Donald Trump, literally, same guy. This all has echoes of the analysis put together by Clara Torres Spellacy of the Brennan Center, who at least didn't regard the SCOTUS mooting of the emoluments case as a win, but she wrote, there is a bigger problem here. Donald Trump is unlikely to be the last business person to win the presidency. In fact, he's close to likely to be the next business person to win the presidency. This is all prologue for a new report issued by congressional Democrats. We have breaking news from Capitol Hill. There are new documents, they come from House Democrats, showing former President Donald Trump received nearly $8 million from 20 different foreign governments while he was in office. That's Chris Jansing on MSNBC. Speaking of new documents, but essentially old news. Now, not the specific accounting. That is welcomed. It was, however, generally known and, as we talked about, given the court's disinclination to make a ruling, not disallowed. SCOTUS punted, remember. So the new flesh on the bones of the Trump emoluments, imbroglio, depended on the Democrats who serve on the House Oversight Committee getting records from Mazers, which is Trump's former accounting firm, and they use them to determine that, for instance, China funneled $5.5 million to Trump and Saudi Arabia gave over $600,000. Wait, you are saying, that has to be an open and shut case. You can't just bribe the president, even if he's Trump. Well, it's not open and shut because it wasn't a direct bribe, and it's not just shut down because that's what the Republicans did to the Democrats' access to the documents when they won back the House. But the Democrats used whatever evidence they could glean, and they did show that foreign nationals repeatedly stayed at Trump-owned properties. That's how the money that they're documenting got to Trump. And it is true, they did do that, but again, there was no law disallowing this. I mean, some would say there is a law, the emoluments clause, but as we've said, it was mooted. It was never adjudicated. Certainly seems shady, but with Trump, maybe shady is an improvement on the outright venal, so we'll take it. Anyway, if I were to make a strongman argument saying that uh, Trump didn't violate the law, I'd say something like you've got to compare the Trump International and Trump Tower stays prior to Trump's attaining office and compare them to 
the amount of money he got in office and see if there was an appreciable uptick in business. There's no law requiring the president to divest himself of his investments. And if you can plausibly show he didn't make more money for being president, that would seem to cut against the idea that he benefited financially from being president. And Eric Trump, who runs the Trump Organization, points out that Trump has been doing business with the Chinese since 2008 when a government-owned bank there signed a lease with the Trump Organization. But the details of the the report further down were interesting. Not more damning or bigger. I mean, remember, thinking about the Saudi money, Jared Kushner's investment fund got a $2 billion infusion from the Saudis a few months after his father-in-law's administration was defeated. But I'm talking about the Albanians, but really the Congolese. So let's talk about the Democratic Ahem and also sick, the Democratic Republic of Congo. There, Joseph Kabila's term expired in 2016, but he refused to step down. Trump, for the record, does not owe him a licensing fee for that move. But what Kabila and Associates did was stay in Trump's D.C. hotel, which he has since sold, that is true. The bills at the hotel were an outlandish, okay, the room is for $550 a night. That's more than the Radisson, but it is the sort of rate foreign dignitaries pay to stay at nice hotels. They racked up bills of $25,000. Again, Joseph Kabila's necktie collection cost more than that. But it was conspicuous, and it was part of a very swarmy, but also quite routine lobbying push that was documented at the time by the New York Times and quite excellently by BuzzFeed. A security and communications firm named Murr Security was paid ultimately $9.5 million by the Kabila government to lobby the U.S. government. $27,000 in staying at the hotel is but three thousandths of that, but lobby they did. And it's quite understandable to see staying in that hotel rather than some other hotel as part of the lobbying. But let me take you to a scene at the Hay Adams Hotel, and this was written in the New York Times. Atop the Hay Adams Hotel, overlooking the White House, was a cocktail reception featuring a short presentation by the Democratic Republic of Congo's special envoy to the United States, an invitation for the reception billed it as an opportunity to learn about the role Africa plays in gaining access to critical minerals such as cobalt and to discuss the strategic relationship between the U.S. and the nations of Africa. In fact, the reception, the Times goes on, was part of an aggressive $8 million that's all it was at the time, lobbying and public relations campaign that used lobbyists with ties to the Trump administration to try to ease concerns about the Congolese president, Joseph Kabila, whose government was facing threats of additional sanctions from the Trump administration for human rights abuses and corruption. So they were trying, these lobbyists, trying to get to Trump officials and get to them. They did. They hooked up with one Rudolph Giuliani. Giuliani's offices told the New York Times that he was negotiating a consulting contract with the Democratic Republic of Congo, though it's unclear what fruits those negotiations bore. Born? Bored. Bore? Emoluments? Emoluments. Let's say bore. Complicating. This whole thing, which is a little bit complicated, was it a direct quid pro quo? Did the Congolese Kabila find a way to bribe Trump by staying in a hotel, for instance? You know, the Trump administration did initially issue sanctions when Kabila didn't leave. Guess who? Nikki Haley flew to Kinshasa and told Kabila, you gotta go. But after the lobbying and after the hotel stays, the threat of sanctions, more sanctions, remained just threats. And Kabila did step down. But his successor is widely seen as a loyalist who won a tainted election 
and the Trump administration seemed fine with all of that. It was ultimately a win for Joseph Kabila. And as far as emoluments, I mean, it's all shady. It's all murky. And by murky and shady, I mean, it's both darkly suspicious, but also just dark. It's hard to discern what's really going on. The Democrats, of course, say corruption is what's going on. And yeah, it doesn't seem great. And it certainly doesn't seem part of making America great again, i.e. have an interest in the national interest. But also the Democrats are trotting out this report to help themselves politically, as NBC's Ryan Nobles reports. This all comes against the backdrop of House Republicans uh, pushing for this impeachment inquiry uh, into President Joe Biden. And basically the, 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 the number one foundational accusation that they've given uh, against the current president, Joe Biden, is that his son, Hunter Biden, was engaged in foreign business activities uh, that benefited Joe Biden and in some way, shape, or form provided assistance to these foreign governments through the public and important positions that Joe Biden held. Which is also a little bit shady. I mean, you could say, no, that's a good point. You're calling our guy corrupt, your guy's corrupt. But isn't that just an example of the propagandistic tool of whataboutism? Whether or not Joe Biden abided Hunter's business dealings is immaterial to the question of if Donald Trump violated the emoluments clause. But to be very, very, very fair, we have to say a motivation for the Republicans pursuing impeachment with Joe Biden under the theory that he got money from Burisma, even though they don't have solid evidence to that effect. One of the reasons the Republicans are pursuing that is themselves to engage in whataboutism, to take some of the attention off of Donald Trump's actual indictments. I would say the emoluments clause, like so much of the story itself, remains shady and unknowable. It's an adjudication that was mooted, and its applicability in this case is undetermined. As far as Donald Trump, he has sold the main hotel that people were staying in, and his former go-between Rudy Giuliani seems to have been taken off the chessboard. But I'm going to guess there will continue to be avenues for motivated parties to appeal to Donald Trump's personal interests that do not necessarily overlap with the national interest. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. AdvertiseCast does our advertising. If you're interested in that, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Do Peru, Thanks for listening. <laughs>